One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. This edition of NewsHour Extra was first broadcast at 9 GMT on Friday, October the 30th. You're listening to the BBC World Service. This is Owen Bennett-Jones with NewsHour Extra. And this week, we are concentrating on Egypt. It's a place that's had high hopes. There's a lot of frustration, some fear, some repression. And our question, has the Arab Spring resulted in democracy or dictatorship? And we're discussing it this week because there are parliamentary elections on, although, as we'll hear, many people are going to boycott them. But let's get uh, straight to introducing the panel. Got a very strong panel this week. Uh, first of all, Major General Sami Saif El Yazal. He is the leader of the For Love of Egypt Electoral Coalition, a supporter of President Sisi, and a man who many believe will lead the majority bloc in the new parliament after these elections. We also have Dr. Wail Hadara, an advisor to Mohamed Morsi, the Muslim Brotherhood leader who is. Uh, now speaking to us from Canada. We've got Sally Toma, psychiatrist and revolutionary. She was the only Christian in the leadership of the movement that launched the revolt against Hosni Mubarak. She's in Cairo. And here in London, two uh, experts, one BBC, Mohammed Taha, a BBC presenter who covered the elections in 07, in 2010, 2012, and uh, former BBC Middle East analyst Magdi Abdulhadi, who's covered Egypt forever and moves between Cairo and London. So, as I say, we've got a lot of expertise around our microphones. And, Mohamed Taha, can you just start it off with a, with a sort of ABC explanation of these elections that are going on now? They're, they're parliamentary elections, right? Yes, uh, it's the first parliamentary elections after hosting uh, the former Egyptian president, uh, Mohamed Morsi. And the, uh, the first uh, phase of the elections finished yesterday and the second will be by the last week of November and we have got some a little bit initial results of the of the uh, first phase that came out this morning okay well before we get on to those initial results there are quite a few people who are not standing right so who's not standing who's boycotting Mainly the Muslim Brotherhood are boycotting the elections and they are prevented of, of being running uh, by standing the, the group as uh, as terrorist group. And what about cause the, the party that's running is perceived, and we're going to hear from its leader in a moment and ask him to comment on all of this, but the For Love of Egypt party. Now, the, it's, it's perceived as a pro-military party. I think they may not agree with that, but we'll hear about that in a moment. What about turnout? What have, what numbers have you got for turnout? Yeah, for, for the first round, not, not the one of yesterday, the one before the government announced that it's, um, it's uh, between 15 and 17 percent, but uh, they haven't been announced for the runoff of yesterday. 15 to 17 percent, so yeah. very, very low turnout. Yes. OK, well, thank you for that little introduction. And let's now speak to Major General Sami Saif al-Yazal. You are leading the For Love of Egypt uh, coalition, as we've heard it is, sort of electoral list. Uh, first of all, I mean, many, you know, it, I, I think without exception, the, the analysts are saying you'll win. You're, you're expecting to win? Yes, I believe so. Let me first uh, correct one figure. The turnout figure is 26.6. This is the official figure from the government. Even if, uh, you know, who knows with these numbers, but if you take your numbers, 26%, I mean, that is an absolutely awful turnout figure, isn't it? Yes, it's, it's not the, the best. But again, because the weather actually wasn't very friendly, uh, we had a lot of rain and uh, 
and uh, other circumstances. But anyway, this is the, the final figure, uh, the official one from the government. Back again to your question, yes, uh, uh, I, I um, succeeded to uh, make a coalition uh, with 10 largest parties in, in Egypt, uh, which forms my coalition and, and, and list. Yeah, but when you say the 10 largest parties in Egypt, I mean, that slightly blurs the fact that when there were uh, elections in Egypt, uh, the, the largest party was the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, and they won every time that they stood. So, and they, they, they can't stand this time. So that's not quite right to call it the 10 largest parties, is it? I mean, it's the 10 largest parties except the biggest one. Right. The Muslim Brotherhood Party is not anymore in, in, the, in the scene. So the, the 10 largest parties are with me in my coalition. Yeah, no, but, I, mean, I, I, mean, I think I would ask you again just to comment on the fact that the largest party in Egypt, by all elections is banned. So, I mean, that does undermine your legitimacy, doesn't it? At the time, I'm not, I'm not talking about right now, uh, uh, they were big because they forced many people to join them uh, to get benefits. Uh, right now, there is no benefits. So hundreds of thousands of people, they left them because there is no benefit right now and there is no party right now. It's all very minimal. So let me just put one more question to you before we open this up to everyone else to, to make their comments. I mean, certainly I think in the Western press and maybe many people in Egypt would think the same thing. The comment is that these elections are a fig leaf, a democratic veneer for what is quite plainly a military-backed government. Uh, I would say the entire country now is, is military-backed because of the threat we have from the terrorism and Muslim Brotherhood and other fanatic groups which are targeting the civilians and targeting uh, the Egyptians or, um, in, in, in general. Uh, but the, there is no direct influence from the military to the government or to any, anything else in the country. Major General, thank you for opening this up for us. And I think what I'm going to do, since you are a very important person in Egypt and you're going to be running the, uh, almost certainly running the majority parliamentary bloc in the next few weeks, I'm going to just ask, uh, let everyone else ask you questions for a bit because uh, I'm sure people will have things to ask you. And can I just ask everyone, because we've got people in Egypt, we've got people in Canada, we've got people in London, all over the place. Can you introduce yourselves when you're asking things and then we'll know who's speaking? So first of all, I can see in London, Magdi Abdelhadi. My question to General Seyfel Yazel is such. Is it really true that you want to change the constitution to take powers from the parliament and give the president more powers? So you're actually undercutting your own institution. And that is a topic that has been widely debated and ridiculed in Egypt. Is it true that that is your plan? Is that your intention to give the president more powers and to take more power from the, the parliament, the elected assembly? That's not true at all. Uh, in regard to the Constitution, we did not practice yet our Constitution, not for a single day. It's not fair to judge the Constitution now. What we have to do is to practice the Constitution at least for two years out of the five years term of the Parliament, and then let's sit and, and see if we do have problems, if we have to, some obstacles, which we believe that some articles has to be changed or, or deleted, whatever, but we did not practice our constitution yet. So you leave so we, the door open uh, for the possibility that in case you think that the president doesn't have enough powers, you should give him more powers. Is that, is that, do I understand you correctly? No, it's not our plan at all. We do not have any plan to take uh, any responsibilities 
existing responsibilities by the constitution for the parliament and give it to the president. Okay, let me just uh, let me just interrupt and ask before we get our next question, Magdi, Magdi Abdul Hadi, why are you pressing on that? Why is that important? Because that is a, a hotly debated topic. The the one of the very good things about the Egyptian the new Egyptian constitution that was approved just last year is that it has actually changed the balance of power between the president and the elected parliament. For the first time in modern Egyptian history, parliament will have more powers than it ever had. And the worry is that that new parliament, which seems to be, there are big question marks about it, is is planning to actually change that back again to the bad old system. A more presidential system. Uh, Let me bring in uh, from our far-flung studios, uh, first of all, why don't we go to Canada, Dr. Wael Hadara, former advisor to Mohamed Morsi. And we should say, of course, that the Muslim Brotherhood leadership uh, leader is in prison facing a death sentence now, having been the leader of Egypt. He is now facing his possible death. Dr. Hadara, what what, uh, question do you have for the Major General? Excuse me, I don't really have any questions for him. I just have an observation to make. You know, we're talking about the elections as if they're a novel practice in the support of dictatorships in Egypt. And we forget or we seem to ignore the fact that under Mubarak, there were at least half a dozen parliaments each, which was elected, and many had a report to turn out that was significantly higher than the present one, up to, you know, 40, 50% official tally. And uh, we all know where that led Egypt. Yeah, you know, okay. Uh, it's not a question, it's a comment, but it's a perfectly fair one. So let me put it to the Major General. This is the new parliament will be like the parliaments in the Mubarak era, basically, as I said earlier, a democratic veneer on, on an authoritarian system. How can you know that? And we're still in the middle of the election. I mean, this is just a prediction. And uh, I, I cannot really uh, answer that because uh, I'm not God. Let's wait and see what the parliament will come out. And uh, I can guarantee from now that the parliament will not like the one under Mubarak time. What will be different about it? Well, it, it, it's the first time in, in, in the history of, of Egypt to have a parliament that big, that there is a guarantee seats for the Christians, guarantee seats for the, for the ladies, uh, for the young youth, the disabled. So we're going to have the entire Egypt inside the parliament. This is number one. Number two, it's the first time ever in the history of Egypt, just like Mr. Magdi said before, that we have uh, the parliament more powerful than the president. We have never seen something like that before, and it's, it is the parliament which we are very proud of. So I completely disagree that this parliament will be like the one under Mubarak. Sally Toma, you've been very quiet up till now. You were very active in Tahrir Square. Do you have a question or comment? Um, I have both. So I have a comment first and then a question. Most of the Egyptians are under the age of 35 and they have boycotted. Uh, This is elections where no one showed up to the extent that there are songs now about no one showing up. So I don't know how they say 27% uh, is the show up. It's definitely not. It's much less than that. Uh, That's a comment. I'd like to ask uh, a question, really. I see that now we are in uh, an Orwellian Egypt um, to begin with. Um, So I want to understand a bit if uh, General sees that actually democracy or electoral democracy in ballot boxes is actually democracy, away from the fact that there are no democratic institutions in Egypt and the compromising of human rights daily to achieve this Orwellian Egypt of uh, Sisi, which is actually run by uh, a war uh, on terror that does not exist only except to oppress us. Well, well, my answer at the time, and, and still that if anybody has any evidence, why, do you, why you didn't go to the general prosecutor and, and, and fire uh, a case against uh, anybody? 
and not I think I, I, I asked them many times to, to do that not a single case independent judiciary can, can, can you leave me please can you leave me please yeah, to, to, you to, asked to the question so book. I was answering we didn't go because we do not have independent judiciary who am I going to go and tell I would very much I would very much appreciate if you wait until I finish my comments please sure I did not uh, even uh, interrupt you as you know uh, anyway th- there is no one not a single fi- single case has been fired against Uh, security organizations or, or anybody or even us, not a single case. And we are asking everybody every single day when they ask us, please go and do something if you have evidence, if you have something in your hand. Well, ma- 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 Major General, can I just, just sort of interject there a bit and say, I mean, that could be because they're frightened. I mean, you know, it wouldn't be an easy thing to do in Egypt today, would it, to, to go and take a case out against a security institution? Many people have fired cases similar cases, but not for election, and they're still uh, alive, and nobody touched them. Why they have to, they have to be true, afraid? True, sir. That's not true. That's not okay. True. Well, let, 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 let me just um, thank you all for, for, for these introductory comments, and let me just go back a bit. Obviously, we all remember Tahir Square, and it began in January, January 25th, 2011. It continued daily until Mubarak resigned, and that was announced by the Vice President Omar Suleiman, on February the 11th. And just to get a reminder of the atmosphere at that time, starting with protests on the 4th of February 2011, demonstrators called that the day of departure. Well, it's a very big, a very noisy occasion there. Um, the square is practically full, I would say. Certainly tens of thousands, perhaps 100,000 or more. It's very, very hard to say because they go round the corner out of sight. Uh, these people all brought together here uh, by a common desire to see uh, the slogans that they've got on banners I can see from here. Irhal, go, get out. Uh, that is what they want. They want Mr. Mubarak to go and they want him uh, to go now. Mohammed Hosni Mubarak has decided to step down from the office of President of the Republic and has charged the Higher Council of the Armed Forces to administer the affairs of the country. My God help everybody. I don't think I need to say anything really. Just listen to the jubilation of this crowd a long way and away from where I am now, on a balcony, two or three hundred metres away from the square. But just listen to this for a few seconds. It says it all. People in the square waving banners, waving their arms in total happiness. This wall of sound has been coming up from the square for the last two or three minutes now since the announcement was relayed to the people in the square that the man whose departure they had been demanding has finally gone. There we are. That's just a a reminder of the high hopes that did exist. Uh, BBC reporters Jim Muir and Hugh Sykes there. Now, many would agree that uh, those hopes have been dashed and there are a number of explanations for that, that uh, the rise of jihadism meant security became more important than democracy, that uh, the deep state maybe feared a loss of its privileges, that the Muslim Brotherhood government was just so bad at governing that people 
couldn't stand it and they wanted a change. So let's just try and understand what happened after the Arab Spring. And uh, while Hadara, let me just start with you on that. You were an advisor to Mohammed Morsi, and many people said he just blew it. I mean, he just didn't, yeah, obviously he was inexperienced, but he just didn't govern well enough to command the support of the Egyptian people. So look, you know, any criticisms of President Morsi's year in office, and I, I keep reminding all my audiences that it was a year in office, not a year in power. Any criticisms are are legitimate. People are free to signal dis, their displeasure or to oppose or to dissent, and that was on view publicly throughout uh, the year that President Morsi was, was there. The question is, what do you do with that? And people, again, forget that in 2013, uh, we were heading towards parliamentary elections, and the Supreme Constitutional Court was, in fact, hardly dominated by the uh, Islamists in general, the Muslim Brotherhood in particular. You could argue that it was a neutral force. In fact, the coup drew its temporary president from that court in 2013. And that was the body that would have overseen the elections law. So we were heading towards parliamentary elections, much as people say we are now, and the opportunity to change the balance of power if there was enough dissatisfaction with President Morsi and his uh, MB or the Islamists was there within easy reach. And so, you know, the question I think everybody has to answer is, you know, would that have been such a bad thing? Would elections in 2013 to change the government for the opposition to take over such a difficult thing? Uh, and the reality, of course, is that it's not as simple as people charge. So, you know, in uh, polls that have been done since uh, the military takeover in 2013, each of these polls by independent bodies, groups like WINIP, the Washington Institute, um, the Pew uh, Institute, the Zorbi uh, Research Associates, all show very robust support for Islamists in general, but specifically for the MB, uh, ranging from 30 to 45%. Let, let me bring in Sally Toma then. You, you, were, you, you, were, you were one of those voices we just heard in Tahrir Square. And uh, can I just ask you to, to focus on your analysis of the Muslim Brotherhood period in power? They were there for a year or in office. And, and w- what is your comment really to Wahil Hadara on whether they blew it? Yeah, I, I, I do believe they blew it, but I, I, I just want to add something. Like, not every Januarian or people who were in the square, I call them Januarians now, these are the people who continued and still continue to fight for freedom. Not all of them supported the actually Muslim Brotherhood being in power. I'm a boycotter from the very beginning. When people tell us you're the ones who brought Muslim Brotherhood, we reply and say it was actually the military that pushed Muslim Brotherhood to come to power, and it was military that removed Muslim Brotherhood from power. We totally oppose uh, Rabaa and what happened in it, and we consider it a massacre in every form, and we consider Sisi uh, let, and his let administration Let me just slow you down. You're, talk, you're talking about the moment in 2013 at Rabaa when, and you know, it is yeah. worth remembering this, and the Major General may want to comment on it, that yes. hundreds Rabaa of people were killed. Hundreds of yeah. people were killed in the streets for uh, defending the Muslim Brotherhood government. Yeah, nearly a thousand of Morsi supporters were killed in Rabaa Square in 2013. It was uh, August 14th, actually, a day no one will ever forget because that's the day Egypt became really polarized. And this is the day when people started cheering for blood. And that's because of a mandate by CC saying that I will get rid of terrorism and so forth, all what happened. I just want to say that we are opposing any military intervention. So, I mean, our principle and, and, and stance have not changed. 
from the beginning till now. We do agree that Rabah is a massacre, but we also agree that the Muslim Brotherhood leadership or the time where they were in office, and I agree not in power, actually um, they lost it. They, they lost it a chance and wasted a very good one because they were securing seats and trying to take over everything from the beginning of syndicates, um, municipality, everything uh, actually, just securing seats in parliament, uh, having mercy in power, so forth, and they didn't care to give people proper manifesto, a proper change, and that's why uh, they would have been uh, toppled, I guess, but not through military. It would have been better through the people calling for it, but we are all very aware that June 30th as well was military intelligence leading this and uh, leading for the ousting of uh, Morsi, and it is a military coup in our eyes. Even as a Christian, I will say it is a military coup. OK, just Major General, I feel I should let you come back uh, on, on the, the events of 2013 when these, uh, it's disputed exactly how many, but high hundreds, possibly a thousand people were, were killed on the streets. I mean, it's a massive event in any country's history by any comparison to what happens around the world. It was a, a monumental event and a, a brutal display of state power. Uh, what, what is your comment on it? Uh, in regard to the figure 1,000 uh, has been killed, this is only what the Muslim Brotherhood saying. But uh, the, actually, the people in Egypt asked the, the government to form a, a committee from the human rights uh, groups uh, and, and judges uh, to really dig and, and see what is the right figures and what, is the, what happens really at the time. They, figured they, came, they came with the, the, the committee, they came with official report, 320 from Muslim Brotherhood uh, and 173 from the police and the army officers has been killed. Uh, so this is really the figures. When the, the committee asked the Muslim Brotherhood to, to, to present uh, a death certificate, uh, which has been, uh, which is the normal thing anywhere to, to, to bury a, a body, you have to have a death certificate. They did not present any death certificate. But anyway, the, the right figure is 320, and that was really uh, just imagine in London that a group came with weapons and, and, and military equipments and came in, at any square and occupied it for two and a half months. Can you allow that? And, and, and didn't allow even people living in, in that area to come without searching them. They were searching kids and, and ladies and men going to their home or coming down from their home. Why? Because that's, that's their area now that they occupy the area called Rabah Square, uh, and, and that's it. They, they put their own law inside, uh, inside that area in Egypt. So that was not really uh, a proper thing to do. Okay, thank you very Excuse much. Excuse me, uh, sir. Uh, like, I, I mean... Very, very quickly, come back. Sally Toma, yeah. Yeah, please. I'm sorry. As a doctor, I'd like to comment on the death certificates. We are very, very much aware that in Egypt, in a government uh, hospital, you will not be given a death certificate because of security reasons. And, and most of those who were actually killed in Tahrir Square in the very beginning, uh, uh, they weren't allowed to take a death certificate. And most of the death certificates actually read falling from balcony, being beaten up by someone to death and it did not say security forces so we are very much aware why those who were killed in Rabah did not actually get death certificates but we do have a very good count and the count is above 700 and again I am not Muslim Brotherhood um, to say this so you're listening to News Hour Extra from the BBC World Service with Owen Bennett-Jones and this week we're looking at Egypt and we have Dr Wael Hadara, advisor to Mohamed Morsi, the Muslim Brotherhood leader. We have Sally Toma, a leader of the protests in Tahrir Square. We have uh, 
BBC's Mohammed Taha and uh, a former BBC analyst, Magdi Abdul Hadi, and Major General Sami Saif Al Yazal, who's the leader of the For Love of Egypt coalition and is likely to be the leader of the majority parliamentary bloc in the new parliament. And let me just introduce one other guest now. We have Francis Ricciardoni. He's a US diplomat who's worked in lots of interesting places, Turkey, Afghanistan, and uh, for our purposes today, Egypt, where he was ambassador between 2005 and 2008. And uh, Ambassador, I know you've been listening to this discussion over the uh, last half hour or so. Let me just, first of all, play you a clip of President Obama. This is August 2013, just after that massacre, as we've heard it described, or the killings of those Muslim Brotherhood supporters who were trying to defend the government of President Morsi. This is what Obama said after that. America cannot determine the future of Egypt. That's a task for the Egyptian people. We don't take sides with any particular party or political figure. We've been blamed by supporters of Morsi. We've been blamed by the other side as if we are supporters of Morsi. That kind of approach will do nothing to help Egyptians achieve the future that they deserve. We want Egypt to succeed. We want a peaceful, democratic, prosperous Egypt. That's our interest. But to achieve that, the Egyptians are going to have to do the work. So very much the Obama policy, as in elsewhere in the Middle East, that he's slightly sticking out of it and saying it's up to Egyptians to sort out. But he didn't cut the aid. So, Ambassador, $1.3 billion is a lot of money. Uh, what does America get for it? Let me correct one thing. You introduced me earlier as an American diplomat. I'm a former American diplomat. I'm sorry, diplomat. you're retired, I should say that. <laughs> right. Yes, so yes. nothing I say should be taken as representing the United States uh, government's uh, position right now. Um, one of the toughest things in Egyptian-American relations is this uh, narrowing down of the definition of the relationship to American aid, whether it's the military assistance, uh, over a billion dollars a year for many years since uh, Camp David, or the economic assistance, which has steadily declined over those years. Uh, so much of this has become a litmus test for the, the quality and the purposes of Egyptian-American relations. And on both sides is a huge frustration uh, over the assistance and the purposes of it. Uh, what the president uh, said in that clip is, uh, I think, precisely reflects what the United States wishes to get out of it, as, as you put there, and that is to say a prosperous and secure Egypt. That doesn't mean supporting President Morsi when he was elected, President Mubarak as Mubarak when he was in office, uh, President Sisi now, these are realities. Uh, these people were put there through Egyptian processes and sustained by the Egyptian people. People do argue, well, American uh, support props them up. That is not the purpose of our aid. Our aid is to help Egypt be secure and prosperous. Okay, well, I'm gonna, let me push back. Prosperous and secure. The secure bit gets $1.3 billion. The prosperous bit, economic aid, gets, I think, the proposal for next year is $150 million, And that's just a proposal. It's not necessarily a done deal. So, I mean, it's more about security than prosperity, right? Uh, at the moment, it, it appears that the Egyptian people themselves are worried about security, no matter what side uh, you're on. Uh, if you're on the Muslim Brotherhood side, then you're feeling uh, oppressed and, and, and endangered by the state. If you're in the majority of people, according to the polls that were just cited, then you're worried about internal threats and, for that matter, external ones too, but um, internal threats coming from 
violent extremist uh, Islam that many people associate the Muslim Brotherhood ideology with. So yes, the Egyptians themselves emphasize security and, and want that and get very upset when the outside world, particularly the United States, put conditions on that security assistance that are tied to how they conduct their internal affairs. Yeah, I want to bring in uh, Wael Hadara in a moment, because I think he was in the room with Morsi as some of these decisions about aid were taken. But just before that, I've got one point to put to you. Since 2013, the Gulf states are reckoned to have given 30, 30 billion to Egypt. I mean, that's like 15 billion a year. And, and there's the United States giving 1.3 billion. Your aid is dwarfed by Middle Eastern aid. Yes, it is. And, you know, honestly, the healthiest American relationships around the world are those where there is no aid because aid tends to create a lot of noise and sometimes uh, mismatch of expectations on both sides. As I just mentioned, that's been the primary problem, I think, in Egyptian-American relations for a very long time. The uh, economic assistance has declined because Egypt, at least for quite a while, was growing out of the kind of need for it. Uh, the military assistance continues because Egypt, whatever leader it's had, the leadership of Egypt representing the, the Egyptian people brought to office, whether through constitutional or extra-constitutional means, has insisted that this is the national priority. OK, let's bring in uh, Wael Hadara, who was with President Morsi at the time he was president. And I think you, you were witness to some of these uh, conversations that went on between Washington and Cairo as to how this aid should be spent, what sort of conditions were attached to it. What did you notice at that time? I think m most, if not all, Egyptians would say that we're not interested in relationships with other nations on the basis of just assistance. Um, and the president, you know, President Morsi made this um, known a number of times. We are looking for bilateral relations that are based on mutual interests and mutual respect. My sort of beef, if you like, with the American administration isn't so much the aid as it is um, how that's framed. So President Obama, you know, in his speech to the United Nations in September of 2013, after President Morsi had been ousted and a month after a thousand people had been killed, massacred, um, you know, made the claim that President Morsi did not, could not or would not govern inclusively as if, you know, the then government in Egypt did. Um, Secretary Kerry, you know, made a number of comments about how the military was restoring democracy and how Egypt is on its way to democracy in what is clearly a you know, very authoritarian situation. So it isn't the aid or the lack thereof. It's the framing of what's going on in Egypt. And I think in that respect, you know, as someone who straddles both worlds, what, what I look for in the positions of the so-called Western democracies is to be true to the values that are espoused. The cause of democracy worldwide is not helped by diluting the meaning of democracy, just as the cause of fighting terrorism around the world is not helped by diluting the, the meaning of terrorism. Yes, a substantial point. Uh, ambassador Ricciardioni, retired ambassador, uh, what do you say? Uh, no argument. In fact, the three main thrusts of American diplomacy over the several decades that I practiced it have been uh, to support our national security in cooperation with uh, partner nations, our national prosperity, and that's always a matter of uh, 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 advancing mutual interests in trade and investment, uh, 
And then a distinguishing feature, I think, of American diplomacy has been also uh, the third set of priorities, which should inform the pursuit of the first two, and that's uh, advancing our uh, values, shared values, preferably with other countries. And we tend to have stronger relations with those countries that do wish to have democracy in their definitions of the term, that is to say governments that feel they, they exist to serve their people and represent their people and derive their legitimacy from their people, and human rights. So those are the three big thrusts. Yeah, and right, you, three thrusts, but you, you listed them you know, uh, that way. I mean, I think many people would say that the rhetoric is all about democracy and human rights, but the reality is about security. The reality is that the three go together. We argue... Uh, I personally argued when I was there that real security, uh, especially when it when it's under internal threat, comes from promoting democracy and and human rights. People have to feel connected with their governments. The governments have to feel not just that they're keeping the lid on the people, but they are listening to the people, serving the people, um, reflecting the people's uh, will. So we see them as going together. I this is back to Abdul Hadi. Of course, Egypt needs the outside world, but I think there is an unhealthy obsession in Egypt with what America does and does not. It's up to the Egyptians to start to realize, to have a dialogue about whether actually the outside world can or has influenced what is going on in Egypt. America could not rescue Mubarak when the Egyptians rose up against him, and they could not rescue Morsi when the Egyptians once again rose up against him. So that conspiratorial worldview that dominates the public discourse in Egypt is really detrimental, is harming Egyptian society. It's about time Egyptians ask themselves serious question why the revolution has failed. The revolution has failed not because the Muslim Brotherhood were overthrown. The revolution has failed long before that. Thank you. And let me now do the same as I did in the first half. And uh, I'm going to let you all uh, ask him questions, Uh, perhaps starting with you, Major General Sami Saif Al-Yazal. What question would you put to the retired ambassador? Uh, What he said actually is is very correct regarding the importance of the national security uh, of Egypt, as well as to link that with the national security of the United States for the aid of $1.3 billion for Egypt from the American uh, aid. The point uh, is, I think the, the Americans, they did a big mistake to allow the Russians to come to the area when they seized the F-16s as well as the Apaches. Can someone help us with what happened here? I, I, I can say Mohammed Taha. What's the story about? What happened recently that uh, there were uh, helicopters that uh, they were going to deliver to Egypt recently and they have been stopped for th- some time. And that has uh, created a debate about the relationship between the United uh, and States and And this was stopped Egypt on the grounds of a lack of democ- democratic Yeah, government. and then and then they have been released recently. Uh, OK. And what's your question? Uh, my question is to the former ambassador is, is to what extent the, this aid that is concentrating on security and it does go to, to the army mainly, to what extent this aid ha- had affected the army's decision to not support Mubarak when the people came to streets against him and to support the, the army's decision to oust Morsi when the people went to street to... So- to protest against him. Okay, so you're saying were the Americans consistent on democratic promotion? Yes. It's basically your point. Ambassador. Um, I was not in Egypt at that time, so I, I certainly can't pretend to know what the Egyptian military were thinking. But from my experience in Egypt previously, I would say they take uh, 
they certainly take relations with the United States very seriously, as the United States takes relations with Egypt seriously. And the military-to-military relationship is a particularly important one. But in my experience, at least, they tend to separate their discussion of, at least we tended to separate, the national security discussion from the internal ones. From time to time, we would bring it up when I would point out the relationship between uh, democracy and human rights, whether with President Mubarak or other ministries, even with, at that time, Field Marshal Tantawi. And the consistent response was, let us focus on our military needs. Those are political questions. We have nothing to do with those, etc. Whether people find that credible or not, I'm not putting this well, up I mean, as a defense. You didn't, did you? I mean, you know, you're, you're a clued up guy. You didn't take that seriously. No, I, I, I said, nonetheless, certainly in our polity, in our Congress, uh, as well as our administration, we do see a nexus. These do go together. We don't wish to impose uh, political conditions on uh, the transfer of military equipment for your national security. But uh, your your strength as a republic matters to you and matters to us. And, and that's why we're having this conversation. I, I wish I could tell you it produced uh, better results, but um, it didn't. We had to respectfully continue, uh, you know, trying to uh, advance our common purposes, whether in national security, yeah. trade and investment, or indeed on human rights and democracy. Let, let me introduce, let me, let me bring back Sally Toma then and just put to you, I think what we're hearing is that, you know, the, the, the role of the United States is somewhat exaggerated in e- Egyptian politics, and that, you know, there's a limit to what the US can do. It can go and make the case for democracy in the closed rooms. But if the military aren't going to listen, they're not going to listen. Well, um, first, I, w- I want to comment on Obama's speech himself. Um, I just want to say that standing neutral in, in face of oppression is actually a bias, and it's the support of the oppressor. Uh, I think um, Sisi um, sees the Pentagon and the State Department as two different Americas, really. And I think themselves see it this way, too. I'm sure there's always the debate between state and Pentagon on human rights versus security. And at the end of the day, what's usually said is uh, the marriage between the Egyptian military and the uh, American military is actually like a Catholic marriage, a bad one, a bad Catholic marriage where they keep on pumping money for things that they can't actually see. But it is a marriage that will continue no matter what. So I'm sure that there is frustration within the State Department in America uh, uh, if they are trying to promote uh, human rights. Well, what they need to know, even the American military, um, just like ours, really, is that to achieve security, you'll never achieve it this way, but by the so-called war on terror, where you get daily terrorist count of 60, 70 heads being killed, just like it happened in Vietnam, for instance, without knowing who's being killed in Sinai. Sinai is a disaster. No one can see anything that's happening in Sinai. You just pump the money and you are not aware of anything that's happening. Actually, activists who sometimes uh, bring videos out of women being killed and children and so forth are actually uh, in Egypt tried, uh, military trials, actually. As okay, well. just to explain, Sinai is the area... Uh, in Egypt, where the jihadis are, are mounting a challenge. There's a lot of Islamist activity there. There's, there are clashes between Islamists and the security forces, and it's been going on for quite a while, and it's a, and it's a new thing. of civilians, actually, and in civilians, Sinai, no doubt. Yeah. of course, and that's the problem I'm sure uh, America's facing, but as I said, uh, this, is a, this is a marriage that will continue. The problem is radicalization, really, because what's happening with this war on terror is actually you are radicalizing a nation even more, and radicalizing it against America, yeah, to begin with, but against 
its own people and itself, you know. Okay, so well, let, let me let me put that point to Dr. Hadara because it's an interesting one for him. I mean, would you say the Muslim Brotherhood's always been committed to the parliamentary route to power in Egypt and elsewhere in the Middle East? Uh, are you losing support to people who want to use violence rather than parliamentary politics? So I, I should be clear that I don't represent the Brotherhood. I understand that. Sorry, you're an advisor to Mohammed Morsi, uh, but nonetheless, you're a very good right. commentator so, on these issues. But I think without a doubt, the absence of options, of alternatives for peaceful change uh, promotes extremism. You know, Again, one of the things that we don't uh, emphasize often enough is that the median age in Egypt is 25 years old. 50% of all Egyptians are, in, are under 25. 40% are under 20. And uh, for that generation of, of Egyptians growing up in the midst of this authoritarianism, repression, violence, and not only that, but the absence of any meaningful national education, health, infrastructure, uh, opportunities for political or economic growth, self-determination, participation in the country's future, what options do they have to constructively contribute to society or to the country? And in the face of that, you have um, a tradition where force draws attention, whether negatively, as in the case of ISIS, or positively, as in the case of negotiating with Iran. You exert yourself, you project muscular power and strength, and people will come to the negotiating table with you, or at least they'll deal with you. Okay, so I, it's I, a very I, seductive yeah. alternative. This leads on to a question that I want to get in before we finish this program. And Major General, I'm going to start with you on this. The case for Sisi, the case he makes for himself, is that he can bring economic reform, that he can bring prosperity, that he can kickstart the economy, and that that will unlock a lot of problems in Egypt. But can he actually, and is he actually doing anything that makes us believe that the economy is going to be a lot better under his management? Because frankly, I mean, most of the indicators are, are still downward. Yes, I, I agree that the economy is a big issue in Egypt. And uh... Uh, the question if he's doing something for that or not, uh, the answer is definitely yes. And uh, we do have uh, so many national projects now going on. One has been finished or partially finished, uh, which is the, uh, the Suez Canal project, uh, and uh, is going to be continued by uh, the new development of, of Suez Canal after that. But the point is, if you see the Egyptian economy right now, it's much better than uh, 16 months ago when he started uh, his administration. Let, let me just put it, because you know, if that's true, it's going to make a difference. So let me just put that to everyone. Mohamed Taha, you want to comment? To make Egypt move forward, we need a debate, I think. Our Egypt needs a, a debate, internal debate. And this debate coming always from having an opposition. And the question is now, with having the, the five main parties who uh, claimed winning the elections in this first phase are supporting Sisi. So from where this opposition can come? You're worried there'll be no opposition in, in the new parliament. Uh, OK, but what, what, can anyone come back on the economy and whether things are really genuinely changing? Magdi Abdelhadi, have you got anything on that? There are positive signs, but on the other hand, uh, there are just the, 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 the size of the problems and the challenges facing Egypt are so enormous that even if Morsi was still in power, Egypt would still be where it is today because there is a health, education, housing, n name whatever you want, crisis in every sphere of life in Egypt. So to expect that Sisi will turn the country around in a year or two is ridiculous. It won't happen. It's not going to happen. There are certain things he's doing right, but there are other things that are not right. Sally Toma, your comment on the economy? It's a question. What are the positive signs? I don't see any. Magdi. So. 
Well, there is no doubt, whatever you think of the the pluses and minuses of the Suez Canal project, the fact that the Egyptians have been able to take pride in setting a target for themselves and achieve it on time, that is that is an enormous boost and for the, the feel-good factor of the country. Economically, it has not boosted uh, at all. Uh, we know that the Suez Canal now is not doing well or great at all. This is just a national project of a dictator. OK, and, and your comment, Dr. Hadara, on the economy. Well, again, you know, there is roughly 750,000 young people entering the job market every year. And so that means that since the military takeover in 2013, we're looking at roughly one and a half to 1.8 million Egyptians now looking for work. How many jobs have been created? You know, yeah. precious few. Major General, um, I'd, I'd summarize these comments as saying, you know, the scale of the task is so enormous that it's slightly implausible to say that he'll be able to sort it. I think it, it is very much uh, possible if you have a good start. I, I would like really before we finish to, to say that the international economical organizations, uh, including uh, IMF and International Bank, has rated Egypt economically much better than before when Egypt started to, to lift the, uh, the subsidy for fuel and other things. So all these steps actually has been already decided uh, and is taking place right now and implemented. And uh, in fact, uh, I would say uh, this is a good start in, to, to extend that IMF and International Bank is coming after Egypt to lend them money. So I would say, in the, to answer a question, yes, I think we are in the right track uh, we are, and we have a lot of work to do. Uh, I agree with you. But I think the future is, is bright. OK, now, just as we close this programme, I'm going to ask all of you a difficult question so you can formulate your answers, what form of words you want to use to answer it. And the question is the one we started with. Is Egypt now a democracy or is it a dictatorship? And, you know, clearly there are different views on that. And I'm going to start with Sally Toma because I think you probably have a clearly, a clearly defined position on that already. And then the others, uh, I'll go around the whole table. So Sally Toma, first of all, your view. Um, I think Egypt is Orwell's 1984, and I think I do not want to be Winston Smith. Uh, I think we do have the ministries of truth and the ministries of love that uh, both uh, promote propaganda and torture. Uh, I think uh, we have a big brother that is uh, available now, and we are all threatened, actually. Uh, I wanted to say something about my own safety, for instance. I've been threatened and for smearing and everything. And when General uh, Saif Al-Yazal speaks about, OK, uh, why didn't you go and uh, and file cases against this specific TV anchor, for instance, who won a seat in parliament and so forth? You have to understand that everyone is being threatened. This person does have recordings of everyone and he airs it on TV. So actually, this is a, a major violation for, you know, freedoms and everything that uh, human rights stand for or even a country would stand for. This is an Orwellian Egypt, not in the making, unfortunately, because we see Big Brother's love everywhere. I just hope and pray, actually, that uh, Egyptians refuse the end of Winston Smith, because I refuse it. Dr. Wael Hadara, your comment. Well, I think uh, following up on that literary reference, I think uh, Egypt is not just Orwellian, it's Kafkaesque. Um, Kafkaesque. It's an unpublished yes. novel by Kafka on Egypt, on the road to democracy. Th- this is an incredibly difficult situation. Every Egyptian wishes, hopes, prays that Egypt will succeed, that Egyptians will have the kind of government that they deserve, um, a representative one in which the hopes and aspirations of Egyptians are realized, in which people can walk by a police station and feel that the police is there to serve and protect rather than to you know, torture and abuse. Uh, and we are very far 
very far from that. Ambassador Richie Ardoni. Well, like the preceding comments, I'm not going to use either of those words, democracy or dictatorship, because I don't think it accurately captures where Egypt is or where it's headed. I would uh, say it's fair to describe it as an authoritarian national security state, and on the economic side, uh, focusing on a more uh, centralized uh, sort of uh, state, if not directed, then um, influenced uh, economy than had been the case, say, when Sadat uh, had his famous infitah, the opening, or even in the Mubarak years when they looked more to a, a private sector-led model. Thank you, Mohammed Taha. I was covering the Egyptian elections uh, on 2010, the last elections under Mubarak. I said on air at that time that Egypt uh, was seeing a political deadlock that that it didn't see before at all. And uh, after the initial uh, results of the these current elections, I feel that uh, the political uh, system in Egypt is back to Mubarak with minor twists. And finally, I say finally because I'm told the Major General has just left us. He's been unable to, to stay any longer. Uh, so uh, finally to you, Magdi Abdelhadi. Sadly for Egypt, the country has quickly moved from the epic days of the 2011 revolution, has quickly moved from that to the tragedy of the failure of the political class to reach consensus. And now it is descending into a political farce. The regime created by Colonel Nasser in 1952 is still largely intact and it is to blame for the failure of the emergence of normal politics in Egypt. Top down, everything is controlled from the top. And Egypt still struggling to recover from the big shock given to that system in 2011 and we have not seen the end of that chapter yet. Well, that's a, a very broad sweep of history you end us with, and thank you very much for it. Thank you to you all for an absolutely fascinating discussion. Uh, we do try and cover subjects in some detail, more detail than we often manage in the media these days. This is uh, BBC News Hour Extra, one topic, one hour every week. Uh, you can get the podcast, and we encourage you to do that. So if you miss it on air, you can uh, still get it on your whatever device. Just put BBC News Hour Extra into Google or whatever search engine you use. And uh, there's Twitter at BBC NH Extra. And also, we do like getting emails from you. We do uh, respond to them, and we try to listen to what you're saying. That's bbcnewshourextra at gmail.com. But as I say, that's it for now. Thanks very much for listening. And from Canada, and from Cairo, and from London, and from Washington, goodbye.